Hello, everyone. To the Monday Morning Analyst, Monday, July 27th. My name is Luke Thomas. I'm the host of this uh, here we are, of this podcast. Uh, we do 30 minutes or less of the technical action in review from the weekend's combat sports. In this particular case, it'll be UFC on Fox 16, TJ Dillashaw versus Henan Burrell 2. This podcast has three parts, your big overview, your review of the technical action, and a very brief but quick look ahead about what's to come in the next coming week. So uh, we have a very limited time window. So let's get, th- let's get things started with our no more than five minutes on the clock for our big overview from the weekend. Um, I didn't see the Kovalev fight on HBO, so I'm just going to stick to what we saw in the mixed martial arts. But I think for me, the major takeaway that I have, such as there is one, I mean, sometimes there's like really big sweeping ones, sometimes there's not so much to really look at. Not necessarily a huge one here, except that um, the longer it takes me to do one of these podcasts in preparation, you know, the more you can tell that you had some really good stuff going on. Because even if there's a back and forth fight, I won't necessarily do a big review of it. Um, the uh, Vaughn versus Holohan fight, Holohan fight is a perfect example. I mean, there's a lot going on there, but not necessarily the most interesting action ever, even though it was, you know, spirited and back and forth and reasonably competent. Um, but there's, there's just a lot more to be said when there's a lot going on between two guys who are, or ladies, who are very much at the top of the food chain. And this one took a while. You know, they had the fight's not just going to decision, and that actually creates a longer preparation time. But, but more so, there's just a lot of finer points to go over. And frankly, I'm not sure how I'm going to do it after fights like Paul Felder versus Edson Barboza and certainly Dillashaw versus Brow, too. I, I had to leave out a ton um, just to be able to get this thing off and going. So highly recommend you check out, you know, uh, heavy hands podcast or Jack Slack or anybody else who's going to cover all the technical action, because you can watch that, those two fights alone, forget the rest of the card where you had Jim Miller versus um, Danny Castillo. And even to a lesser extent, Holbrook versus Nijum. Um, there was just a lot going on, just a lot going on, a lot of finer details you know, you didn't see a lot of cage stalling, which lesser wrestlers often do. In fact, even on the women's side of the game where, you know, the wrestling is not necessarily quite as strong, both standing wrestling and, you know, uh, on the on the mat kind of scrambling. Great job by both women in executing their game plans as it related to wrestling. So, like, you just saw a general level of excellence throughout the majority of the card that was in keeping what I would like, what I always call on this podcast, and if you watch, you're familiar with it, the common standard of excellence. That's sort of what I expect from the UFC, the common standard of excellence. And this fight, I mean, you know, these fights weren't as, as barn-burning as UFC 189. Not many are. Um, but it was just nice to see, with the exception of that Jessamyn Duke-Elizabeth Phillips fight, we'll just forget, erase that from memory. The, car, the fights certainly that I'll cover on this podcast were very much in keeping with that tradition. And I think, you know, maybe you say it's an insignificant point or maybe you say it doesn't matter or whatever the case may be. For me, it really matters. I don't like watching the UFC product and seeing anything less than that. I really don't. I really, really don't. It doesn't do anything for me. Frankly, I don't quite understand it beyond the fact that people keep buying it because it's got a UFC label on it, but it's not particularly unique level of mixed martial arts. The unique level is what you saw on Saturday for the fights I'll cover and up. That's the unique level. That's the one that's very hard to match. And that's the one I always like to see. We got a lot of it on Saturday, and for that, I'm very grateful. All right, so there's my big overview. Nothing too major, not necessarily a whole lot um, to opine about, any kind of sweeping grand tradition. But with that being said, 
Let's uh, start the clock now with 25 minutes. Whoop. I'll give you 26 since I only went to a four-minute mark. And here we go. All right. So let's review the technical action that we saw on Saturday. So Saturday was UFC on Fox 16, also known as, I guess they're not calling it Fight. Well, yeah, they do call it Fight Night, UFC Fight Night Chicago, whatever the case may be. Uh, attendance was 11,663. Um, total gate was 1.2 million. You see for these Fight Night shows that they do on Fox, they want to fill the arena, so the ticket prices are really low. Because if you've got 11,000, nearly 12,000, and you only got a $1.2 million gate, I mean, do the math there. You're not selling the tickets for a whole lot on average. Um, but still, uh, decent attendance. Anytime you can clear over a million at a gate, you're probably doing okay. Then, And, you know, certainly TJ Dillashaw probably makes a decent amount of money, but there's not too many expensive people on the card. So, all in all, probably a big success. Um just before we get to it, your fight of the night was Edson Barboza versus Paul Felder, and your performances of the night were TJ Dillashaw and Tom Lawler. Um, okay, so there are three portions to the card. The main card on Fox, four fights. There were four fights on the preliminary card, also on Big Fox, and then on the uh, preliminary card, UFC Fight Pass. Not going to do a whole lot of talk about the Fight Pass fights. The Kraus versus Crutching fight I'll get a little bit into, um, and Holbrook Nijin was kind of interesting, but... The other two, not, not a whole lot to talk about. So let's start from the top. So I was struggling to talk about this fight. TJ Dillashaw defeating Henan Burrell via TKO punches at 35 seconds of the fourth round. I was struggling to do that because there's so much to it, so much to what TJ Dillashaw is doing. For starters, one of the things that has to be noted, and I usually go in this podcast, I usually go round by round. Here's what happened in this round. Here's what happened in that round. I'm going to do that for all the fights except this one. Because I would just run out of time with all the brilliant things that TJ Dillashaw was doing. Let me make one quick point before I get to some of the stuff that he was doing that was absolutely incredible. If and when he fights Dominic Cruz, I really think they need to rethink the camera technology in, in MMA. And I don't know if this is allowed. I don't know if this is even possible, even in five years. But there are moments when you're watching a fight. And it's no one's fault because the UFC and Bellator does this too, to a lesser extent, but they still do it. It's they'll put the camera shot on and the feet of the fighters will be missing sometimes. That is a travesty when it comes to TJ Dillashaw. That will be an unforgivable crime as it relates to TJ Dillashaw versus Dominic Cruz, two guys who might have the best footwork and movement in the entire sport. It's, it's, I would be beyond dismayed if there were key moments of the fight where we lost this. Because if you go back and you watch this fight, you can actually see who's winning this fight by watching from the waist down. That's kind of how incredible this fight is. You don't even have to watch anyone from the waist up. Certainly it helps in seeing which punches land, but if they only shot from the waist down and you just saw one person's foot movement, you could immediately tell who was winning. You could just immediately tell. One person would be stumbling and off balance. The other person would be circling around in and out and, and, and finding different ranges and all different kinds of tricks. One person, of course, would be stumbling to the ground and beyond that. But to me, the real big takeaway here is they need to find a way to get the camera inside the cage, not on top shooting down, not on the outside looking in. They need some kind of technology where they can lower the camera inside the cage to the extent possible. How possible is that? I don't know there needs to be that kind of update thought about. TJ Dillashaw, what 
things can you possibly say about him that have not already been said? Well, the following. This is the fight that helped me understand how he was so misunderstood heading into the first Boral fight. And the reason why was because after the first Boral fight, Boral got audited. They understand, TJ Dillashaw and Dwayne Ludwig understand Boral in ways better than Boral understands himself. From his tendencies to his movement to how he reacts to things, they they just have his number in ways that you know most elite fighters don't have anyone's number like that. Uh, Ronda Rousey, notwithstanding, you know she has everyone's number. It appears, but you get the idea. Um, and so I thought, what could he really do different the second time around? Turns out you can do a lot different, and most notably was the prolonged periods in which he spent this fight in Southpaw. And not just like, I'm going to, a lot of guys switch and don't do a whole lot with it, or they switch and they have a couple of attacks they like from that side. No, no, this was like handwriting from one side as good as the other. This was playing tennis with one side as good as the other. This was playing a violin from one side as good as the other. It is magisterial to borrow from Ray Hudson, his, his, his acumen with this non-dominant hand. I don't even know if you can say he has a dominant hand anymore. That's what we're talking about here. Unbelievable, beyond my grasp of the English language to describe um, how good he is with that. And that's important because I saw flashes of that in the first fight. I saw the coming out party in this one. And I guess my point is about the first Henry Burrell fight I didn't think a person could make this much of a leap, that much of a technical leap. It's not that you can't get a lot better between fights, but rounding that corner where you have that kind of command over one side of your, you know, stance versus another, if you've never tried it, it's, 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 you know, go out and play catch with your friend with your opposite hand and see how it goes. You know, now imagine pitching in the ninth inning of the world series. Like, you know, we're just talking about a different level of control over very difficult skills to acquire. Um, anyway, just to wrap this up, that's why I think he was underrated in the first fight because he's making these quantum leaps between fights. How much further he can go, I don't know, but that's why we didn't get the glimpse that we thought we needed heading into the first morale fight is because his coaches saw him going like this and we saw him going like this, but not like this, which is what he's doing now. Anyway, so what, are, what were all the things he did? I mean, there were so many things he did right. First of all, lead foot positioning, that T we talked about that Robbie Lawler was trying to get with um, Rory McDonald. If you're going to fight in the southpaw stance, having your lead foot on the outside of theirs, opening up a lane for your dominant hand or even your hook, your check hook, depending on what you want to throw, but you're just creating that proper angle. Look, Go back and look at his outer foot dominance when he was in that and how would he establish that. He always played with range, and he never sat in range longer than he was supposed to, and he always sat in range as long as it made sense. It's really one of the more remarkable things. So he would use what's called a dart, where he Dominic Cruz does this. A BJJ scout has a video about this. You you essentially leap in one direction and you can pivot on it or you can leap in and then turn another direction. It's called the dart. He would use the dart a, a number of different ways, one of which was to establish that lead foot dominance in the southpaw position. But he might start from, from the southpaw or he might start from opposite stance and then leap into it. Um, he had a lot of ways of establishing that. So the dart was a big key. Outside foot positioning was a big key. Um... He would know when to flurry, 
when Burrell was fighting in straight lines because Burrell once sometimes had had a counter to the dart. So Dillashaw would dart in with a punch, change the angle, and Burrell would throw the normal counter, but he would back out at the same time, not leaving the counter open for Dillashaw. So he could he clearly had a, a some ability to anticipate responses from the dart, but um, but there were moments he would get caught fighting in straight lines. And Dominic Cruz talked about this on Twitter very briefly. You go back and you watch the portions of the fight, that's where you see big flurries from Dillashaw. Dillashaw throws a lot of combinations and a lot of punches, very, very rarely ever single shots. But it's not like those big dominant flurries. They only came when, when Burrell was doing this, like literally only came at that moment. Um, even when he had Burrell dead to rights caught at an angle, he might throw a punch-punch kick or just a punch straight whatever he needed to do, but it's the big flurries that came in straight lines. Like his, his understanding of, of when to, you know, when to let the piranhas go, so to speak, was kind of impeccable. It was an amazing moment in the second round on a clinch break. Like he never traded with Barrow. He fires a right elbow to Barrow. Barrow's back is against the fence. This hand's sort of an underhook. He fires a right elbow over the top. Uh, Barrow kind of faces him, uh, fires a right hand. He ducks it, rolls out to the left. So Barrow is stumbling this way because Barrow throws these – he just throws big hooks, you know. TJ Dillashaw ducks it, turns the angle, pops him with a jab, bang, head goes right back. But, I mean, he had him dead to rights if he wanted to fire the left too. And this is what I'm talking about. Even in the clinch, you know, he didn't try to reset to a orthodox position. He was happy to clinch break and then stay in southpaw and just pop him. I mean, it was amazing, amazing the kind of things he was doing. Um Burrell was, I think, discouraged by the end of round two and was throwing a lot of single strikes. And as a consequence, Dillashaw would chew him up in the process. It was kind of amazing, too, because Dillashaw seemed to have, if you go back and you watch the fight, just watch it on mute. Dillashaw seemed to have a really strong sense of exactly where I needed to be um, in terms of just being out of the way of Burrell's punches, which is hard to understand when you consider how much of a reach disadvantage he had several inches. I think up to five, maybe, uh, maybe not quite that much, but it's pretty significant. And yet it was Burrell who was missing because Burrell would, if, if, if you, if someone holds their fist out and this is the range of their punch, that's fine. But a punch can, 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 cur- you know, range of their arm rather, but a punch can curve. Um, and it can cause, especially a hook, you know, you're not, you're not throwing a hook like a windshield wiper. There's a little bit right here. So Dillashaw always seemed to be just, just orbiting outside of it. But it was these are all sort of minor things he did to just pick off Barrow and, and discourage him, um, and to catch him, you know, in all these different positions. Which eventually, you know, his his cardio faded too. But it was in that third round where, to me, this was really things began to pick up, uh, pick up a step. Um, so what happens once? Burrell fades kind of to his left. Dillashaw, this this is the ending sequence, and he, Dillashaw end, uh, connected on this a number of times. Different variations of it, but I'll explain in just a second what happens. So what happens? Um, Dillashaw is in southpaw, and Burrell begins to fade left. So against, out of the power hand of Dillashaw. Dillashaw switches stances. So now you're walking into the power hand, but it doesn't matter. As he begins to move left, Dillashaw switches to orthodox, bangs home, an outside leg kick. What does Burrell do? 
Burrell tries to throw a left hook over the top. I'm surprised by that. I don't know why he didn't throw down a straight right, right? I don't, I don't quite get that. That's usually the typical counter there, but whatever. He does it. Burrell responds with a left hook, but Dillashaw, it's, this is what's the most amazing to me. Dillashaw throws punches and then has this like preternatural sense of the second this impacts or misses, but you know where it would have impacted, I need to be on the move right away right away ridiculous movement in the pocket i don't mean huge big sweeping movements i mean just the right amount of movement so what does he do Burrell counters with the left hook but dillashaw is already stepping out of the way dillashaw slides to his left already in motion and now the angle is set up fires a right uh fires a jab fires the left jab and then the right hand down the middle now Burrell gets tagged with the right hand. So what does he do? Burrell, or Dillashaw has just fired the right hand. Burrell tries to come back over with another left hook. Okay, this is the beginning of the end, and this is the same thing he would do in combinations over and over and over again when he would be backed up and cornered. Dillashaw is uh, now ducking. So what happens? Burrell fades left. Dillashaw switches stances, throws an outside kick. Burrell comes over, but he's already too late. Dillashaw's reset the angle, fires the jab, bang, one, two down the middle. Now, Burrell still wants to catch him, fires another left hook. Dillashaw ducks like super, super low and then leaps into a left hook and catches him flush, catches him flush. I mean, just think about this. He has switched sides on him, baited him and connected with an outside leg kick, ducked a punch, Landed not one, but two of his own, ducked another punch, and then landed from the opposite side. How, how do you deal with that? How could you, how do, how do you possibly deal with that? If you are a flat-footed kind of Muay Thai striker, how do you deal with that? That is a virtuoso performance that he turned in. Um, incredible. Incre- Look at how little he gets hit for the amount he's hitting someone else and the amount of punches the other person is throwing. I mean, it's just, it's like and the in angles. I'm hitting you low. I'm hitting you high. I'm hitting you this far out, and then I'm switching this far in. Like when you, if you go back and you watch, I'm not even doing it justice. Like when he switches stances and then throws the leg kick to set up the final combo, he he he's kind of far out to the right. And then when Burrell throws the left hook, it misses not because he ducks it. It misses because Dillashaw slides. So, like, there's just no one to hit. So, think about that. You're this far out. I'm throwing my left hook. And before I can even reach you, you're here in front of me. Bing, bing. I'm going to try and reset the angle. I throw another left hook. You duck. Bing. Like, there's this is, this is, this is phenomenal. Phenomenal stuff from TJ Dillashaw. Just side to side, over and over. Perfect use of distance management. Insane use of angles. And the thing that this fight reminded me of, and this is the point I want to make, Daniel Cormier was one time on MMA Uncensored Live, and we talked to him about it, and and he was saying that, you know, when he fought Bigfoot, one of the things that really was, you know, his striking looked, if you go back and watch the Bigfoot fight, his striking looked phenomenal, was that he just felt like Bigfoot was so slow, you know, so slow. So he had a real speed advantage. He was able to get out of the way of punches, reset his own angle, bop, bop, and then, you know, use his own hand speed to, to do what he had to do. This fight kind of reminded me of that. And you're going to say, that's crazy. Burrell's not that slow. Dillashaw's not that fast. Dillashaw's hand speed isn't that fast necessarily, although that ending flurry was pretty great. But, you know, 
we mentioned Robbie Lawler in the past. Robbie Lawler doesn't have this, like, he still has this big power, but he's kind of brought it back to earth a little bit to be a more polished striker than he lets the big punches go when he can. Um, I feel like Dillashaw is kind of, in that sense, he can explode into big speed, but what it really gets to him is his brilliant, brilliant movement combined with his brilliant, brilliant timing and understanding of angles in the pocket and, and how to make it all happen for himself. Um, wow. Just wow. Just un- insane performance from TJ Dillashaw. When you can watch that, there's just, and I'm not even talking about one-tenth of the things he did, but I just want to point out that ending sequence, he would do that a lot. He would switch the stance, use a kick to enter the combos, uh, or enter, enter the pocket, and then from the pocket would slide around in the space usually ending with that leaping left he would catch him with. He caught him with it right at the very end of the third round, too. And the fight was stopped in the fourth. Okay, let's move on to uh, Misha Tate versus Jessica I. This was another great fight. This fight was officially decided at, um, let's see, five minutes of the third. Oh, actually went all the full distance, and she won unanimous decision 30-27. I'm a little bit behind on time, so let me just work through this if I can. Um, so... She was getting blitzed early. Tate threw a front kick, and then she was getting lit up with with what just guy was doing. Just guy has pretty clearly big power, um, good hand speed, good combinations, but just doesn't do a lot of defensive movement that we had talked about with TJ Dillashaw. Um, and Tate had another problem. Tate, first of all, wasn't understanding what was working necessarily, and the other thing that she was doing was Tate has a very slow pocket retraction. So if she throws a one-two, she doesn't get out of the way very quickly. She kind of stays there a little bit which gets her popped all the time. This is kind of even, or if she would do a one, two, let's say a jab cross hook at the end of her hook, someone would get outside of her and she'd still kind of be hunched over on one side. So that's something I still see as a bit of a problem for her with her striking. It's gotten a lot better, but her ability to retract or move. I mean, look at Edson Barboza. He connects with you and he's gone, gone. She still has an issue with that. So that got her lit up a little bit early, but we all know what happened. Tate ducked her right and then threw, um, Right, so Tate ducked a right and then threw a left jab that stung Eye, and then she did the fake level change, came over with a right and dropped her, um, and then basically spent the entire time on top on half guard with just guy using the lockdown. Lockdown's like half guard, except I'm just I'm not just locking down one of my legs. One, my outside leg, whichever side that is, is going to come under your shin, and I'm going to it immobilizes you. There are ways out of it. There are counters to it, but it can be a bit of a pain in the ass. Round two, what does she do? Tate fakes the level change, then goes to the uppercut, fakes the level change, then punches away into the clinch just to vary it up. Nice things that Tate was doing. Tate was able to land the double right hook despite having her lead leg kicked out. This shows you how much Jessica I's head was straight in the air. Jessica I kicked out the front leg after a right hook that Tate lands. Tate just kind of stumbles back and then throws another one, and I's head is still there. Not so great. Um, so then what happened? Tate drops her again, same punch. Whoop, bang, gets her. This is what I love. Tate put herself in half guard, basically, um, because that triangle with no arm inside, you can get choked with someone really good, but it's you know it's very insanely rare. So Tate moves to half uh, side control, puts herself in half guard, and then is banging on the opposite side ribs of uh, of I. I brings the hand down. I thought she was going to do that to get a Kimura. That's usually the typical response. Someone's arm is out here, you bang on them here, they lower the arm, they bring their hand down to stop you, and you grab the wrist and you make it work. She didn't. She actually actually was one step ahead. She then uses that to wrap the head. She uses that to wrap the head with this side. So you're not looking. You're here. Eye's head is here, 
I'm banging, I'm banging. You bring this down, whoop, come back and you and you grab it. And she had that Joker tight, super tight. You can see eyes, eyes bulging out of her skull. But you remember when um, Luke Rockhold finished off Michael Bisping? Now that was full mount, I believe. But what did he have? He had the whole head locked and then the hand posted. Jake Shields had a similar thing in one of his recent fights, too. You got to post that hand because that hand allows you not just to balance up, but to drive your hips in to really make that choke work. This is not so much here. If you have this properly in tight position, it's not like I'm going to do this. It's I keep this tight. And yes, I do lean, but I use this to really drive my back and hips. It's not so much, you know, rotating here exactly. Now, I don't know why she had to put herself into half guard to do it because that killed her ability to finish it. Um, you can wrap that up from side control and then just do a knee on belly. So I'm not sure what she was thinking there with that. I'd like to talk to her about it. But uh, anyway, that's that. Third round. Um, Tate was getting kind of lit up a little bit in that third round. She wasn't having necessarily as much success, but she runs down a double leg. This was what was amazing. She has the underhook. I has the overhook. But... Misha has the underhook and it has stepped over the near side leg of Tate of a uh, of I. So rather than let you know I keep going, she uses the underhook to drive her face to the mat. That keeps her down. Base is still up, but keeps her down. Um, I lets go of the wizard, right? And then this is where her wrestling experience comes into play. Tate just basically does like a folk style, like front ride to keep her to keep I's weight forward and then uses that to kind of roll her at an angle. So she's driving her forward and kind of leaning. She's like Paul Wall. She's uh, sitting sideways, just trying to lean to one side, gets eye to do it, whoop, and then sinks the hook right as she does, rolls over, and then finishes the whole, uh, you know, she doesn't uh, put her away, but um, gets the back. One quick note, everyone was talking about this. So what's I do? She clamps down her elbow to her hips. You can't get, you know, she, she traps Tate's hand. She can't get the hand back. And then they stood him up. Okay, you're stalling. You're stalling. You should get you should get penalized for that. If you're doing this right here and you're not offering any offense, you're stalling. I don't mind control positions. If you like control positions, you should be able to work with them. But um, if you have someone's on your back and your whole thing is I'm just going to hold your hands and I'm not going to do any evasive maneuvers, you're waiting for them to do the evasive maneuver, totally, totally uh, should not have that stand up, stood up at all. I completely disagree with that stand-up. Uh, anyway, all right, Felder versus Barboza, round one. They're, again, I'm going to leave out a lot because there's so much to get to. We just don't have time for all of it. But um, the big thing for this this fight was two things that caused Felder to lose. Round three, he basically took off, and Barboza did a better job of maintaining where the fight took place at, at what range. Felder had some success with some blitzing attacks, especially with knees. Um, and to the extent they traded in the pocket, I thought Felder got the better of the punching. But there wasn't a lot of pocket exchanging. There was a lot of kicking and spinning attacks. And to that extent, it was really Barbosa's fight. Um, I had Barbosa winning 29-28. I think he, I don't know if he won the second or the third, or first or the second, but whatever. Um, in any event. So what happened? First of all, also, if you go back and just watch, there's, you know, Felder's technique, uh, foot, you know, footwork is a little bit more, I won't say plotting, but a little bit more deliberate, whereas Barboza is just bouncing and moving, bouncing and moving. Hang on.
Okay. Um, so there was one moment in the first round where Barboza's fading back slightly to his left and does a switch step and then throws a left body kick. Um, Felder had not anticipated it. Felder thought that – I'm not sure what he thought exactly, but it looked like he thought he was going to get blitzed with his hands because Felder throws a right elbow counter like the Karn Condit threw against Alves, and it hits nothing but air. Um, you know, Rogan had talked about the speed of the switch step that he has. You know, you just – and then you throw, and that's true. But it's more than that. Like, he's able to – fake you out so like it's not just he's not just beating you to the punch he's getting you to expect something else and then can light you up with it so he did a really good job with that in the first round um barboza there's one in the first one barboza fake like he was coming for oh this was this was nice barboza fakes like he's coming down like he's ducking down uh for um you know a shot to the body uh but he retracts Felder fires an uppercut, and then Barboza hits a spinning back, uh, spinning back fist. That was a nice moment. Um, there was a moment at the end of the first round where Felder raises his knee twice to gauge um, Barboza's reaction, and Barboza's hands come up just slightly, not much, hardly at all. It's hard to see even. He comes up just like this. So Felder does a, a, like, a like a skip knee inside, like a switch step, grabs Barboza's wrist and then fires the knee up the middle. That was a really nice shot by Paul Felder in the second, in the first, in the second round, it was a moment where he had the spinning back fist. Barboza's fading, right? Then he fades left. Paul Felder misses the angle or actually, actually adopts the angle because he's actually wanting to get cut off a little bit. Cause if you fade left and then you fade right, if you fade left and you fade right and the person's still coming in, you're sort you, you've sort of changed the angle here. And then he hit them with a spinning back kick to the body. That was a nice move by Edison Barboza. Uh, let's see. Felder had a nice left hand, right elbow over the top as he jumps in range. And then a left knee in the middle. That was nice. So he throws a left hook, then right elbow over the top. And then as Barboza's retracting, hands up here, fired another knee up the middle. That was that was slick. Um, let's see what else. There's a bunch of kicks that Barboza landed. We don't have time to get into Felder scored with a, a right hand over the top as Barboza circled into it. Oh yeah. So Barboza is circling out to the right into the power hand of Felder. Uh, Felder has a uh, Felder throws a right hand, which connects Barboza is still fading that way. And then quickly he blitzes the angle to the side of the fence throws a left knee up the middle and then hits him again. So I think it was maybe the second round I gave to Paul Felder. I thought he did a really good job. But in the third round, he kind of just took it off, man. It just wasn't it wasn't a lot of effort there in that third round. I, you know, I, I thought he was doing really well for the most part, but, you know, uh, just not enough. Um, there was a moment there where Felder switches stances, and Barboza does the same, but just for a split second. So some guys, like, switch stances, and then it's deliberate. Now I'm going to pace, 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 throw a strike. Switch stance, pace, 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 throw a strike. He doesn't do that. He Felder switches stances and does the pace, pace, pace. Barboza switches stances quickly, fires the left, and then circles out the other side. That was brilliant from Edson Barboza. Um, and then a lot of just good framing from Edson Barboza. A lot of this, a lot of hands up, kicking, sliding out. Did a really good job of – there was an initial left hook that caught Barboza that kind of – Swelled him up, but he did a really good job of protecting it the rest of that fight. That left hook was not much of an issue um, after that. There's so much more to that fight. I don't have time to get to because I'm running out of time here on this podcast. Uh, Lausanne versus Gomi. 
The only thing I had to really pay attention to was Gomi or uh, Lozon throws the left hook. Gomi tries to throw one of his own. Lozon is in on a single, tries to finish it. Gomi spins out counterclockwise, tries to run away, but he can't. Why? Lozon had a control of that foot. In wrestling, that's common. In MMA, it's hard because guys can be slippery and they weren't very sweaty, but you just never know. Guys warm up. It's hard to tell exactly how um, how non-sweaty they are. Anyway, Lozon gets it, takes the back, does like a Sulev stretch from there, almost like a knee bar from the back, doesn't, can't finish it, moves to side. Gomi gets to his base. Lozon jumps him like a horse, puts in the far side hook first, then the near side, flattens him out, and then pounds him out. Good job by Joe Lazan there. Nothing too amazing, but because um, just Gomi was outmatched. But great job by Joe Lazan. Uh, oh, and let me get these uh, finishes real quick. Joe Lazan defeated Tekanori Gomi at 237 of the first round. Edson Barboza defeated Paul Felder 29-28 across the board. Uh, Tom Lawler did defeat Gian Vellante. Here's what I went back and watched. The commentary for this fight was weird. It is true that Lawler was getting you know beaten to the punch, and I didn't see it in real time either. When I went back and watched this fight on mute, Lawler was way more competitive than I thought he was the whole time. That right hand, that check right hook, was landing all the time in the first round. I will say that Volante was doing a better job of getting an elbow up to block, or uh, Moussin Colbury was the uh, first guy who ever talked to me about, you know, boxers can see punches coming. And so what they'll do is they'll kind of bite down the mouthpiece and roll with it a little bit. So it might land, but doesn't really do a lot of damage. You're kind of basically okay. Uh, and there was a lot of that Volante did. I want to give him credit. He did do a couple of those things. It wasn't like he was just getting lit up over and over again. But the but but that punch was a staple of Tom Lawler's diet in the, in the first round, constantly going back to it and, and, frankly, having a fair amount of success with it. So, um, so to me, when he landed it in the second round with Volante charging forward and not moving his head and just getting caught with it, you know, at least when he was in the middle of the cage, he was kind of motioning out. This time he was barreling forward, remember. It wasn't that he was stationary. He was coming forward. To me, not, not much of a surprise in retrospect, to be honest. All right, so Jim Miller defeated Danny Castillo 28-29, then 29-28, and then 30-27. Um, just, I'll get to as much as I can on this one, then I just got to get out of here. I'll do two more fights, then I'll get out of here. Um, so Miller catches a kick, the high kick from Castillo, uses... And then they go to the ground. Castillo immediately has an underhook and an, and um, a left butterfly hook to push off and sit up to get to get Miller off of him. Miller cuts the angle, takes away the and and the right post arm of Castillo. So Castillo has you know hook here, hand here hook. I'm trying to get you off. Miller cuts the angle, comes around and pushes and takes away the posting arm and then drives him back down. Really good job. Um, this was kind of nice. Let's see. So Castillo has an underhook and a same side butterfly hook this time to stand. So before he had an underhook and an opposite side, and he's trying to roll him over. This time he has same side because he's trying to back out and stand. Um, Miller uses a whizzer and a lax right opposite knee to basically open up a, a spot to mount. So, so think about it this way. Castillo has an underhook. Yeah? Castillo has an underhook, and he's trying, or it's, I should say this side, trying to stand. Miller comes out this way, has an overhook, has a wizard here. Miller lifts Castillo's arm and then drives the knee across. That's what he does here. So he he, he it's not just that he's driving, because he's also driving the opposite angle. Where's Castillo want to go? If I have an underhook here, I want to go this way. I want to go this way, and I want to stand out. That's where I want to go. Miller's driving in. But as Miller drives in with that wizard, 
he lifts the arm of Castillo. And the right leg here of Castillo got a little bit lazy. Whoop, here, and then they game them out right, right across. And of course, you don't mount by stepping. You mount by driving the knee, and then the foot essentially just falls over like a windshield wiper. Um, great job by uh, Jim Miller in doing that. Um, so what happened in that first-round submission – Miller essentially set up an S mount and then tried to finish it, had one hand on the mat, one hand on the knee, rolled over, couldn't quite cinch it. So it was locked in the sense that it was, you know, everything was in the right place. But instead of being here, it was kind of like here. It wasn't, it wasn't really there. And the way Castillo got out of it was kind of brilliant. On the locking leg of Miller, Castillo just stepped over it with his knee. So now Miller who's already too far up, can't sit back to cinch it where it needs to go. Miller abandons it, basically, and then they separate. But that was the key step there for Castillo, just getting his right leg over the locking leg of the triangle of Jim Miller. That, that stopped basically everything, so really good job there. Uh, in the third round, Castillo throws a high kick and then eats a left hand, which knocks him down. Miller jumps on it, but Castillo gets the right side underhook and the right butterfly hook, excuse me, two butterfly hooks at the time. And then what does he do? He lifts Jim Miller over him, and then circles out the back door. That was nice. Rather than trying to like, you know, so he failed twice before. One time trying to turn him, one time trying to get up and stand. Forget it. I'm going to get the underhook. I'm going to get two butterfly hooks, and I'm just going to put you over me. You see this with spider guard with the gi. Guys get thrown because they get, someone gets under them and then pushes them over. Similar kind of idea. He just basically got underneath them, held his weight, pushed them off, and then circled out the back door. Very nice job by Danny Castillo there. Um, and then let's see, there was one more point at the very end. Miller tried to get a takedown, couldn't. Danny Castillo got the chin, yanked him at an angle. So he goes to his knees, almost like a snap down. Uh, Castillo tries to go to the back. Miller holds up an arm, stops him from taking the back. Almost looks like he wants to go for a fireman's carry. Remember, if you don't have – what does Chad Mendez do? Chad Mendez always beats the arm. If one person's here on top of the other one and the person wants to go to the back, if you hold out the arm, they can't go. So Miller holds up the arm, and it looks like he's coming over for Fireman's, misses it, doesn't want to get his back taken, so then he Granby rolls himself into side control. Not a good place to be in side control, but you can at least get back to guard from there, and you can always, um, um, you know, better than having your back taken. All right, so real quickly, let's go over this Ben Saunders fight with, um, with Kenny Robertson. So there's two things I want to focus on on this fight, and then we'll get out of here. Number one... Kenny Robertson didn't want to be in Saunders' guard in the first round the first time they went there. And it's a testament to Saunders' ability to get there. So what happens? Think about it this way. If you're in Saunders' full guard, that's where all the nonsense happens. But if I'm in Saunders' half guard, you better have a half guard game because your full guard game is no longer in play. And people will tell you, like, just because you have a good guard doesn't mean you have a good half guard. And just because you have a good half guard does not mean you have a good guard. There's all different kinds of guards. Spider guard, De La Hiva guard, reverse De La Hiva guard. Mantis guard, De, reverse De La Worm guard, Worm guard, um, all different kinds of guards. All And, of course, a huge variety of different spider guards. Like, there are just different kinds of ways you play. Just because you're good at one does not mean you're good at the other ones at all. I mean, maybe you have a general good guardness, but don't think because you have a good guard, have full guard game that your half guard game is as good. And I think you're, this is a testament to that because what Robertson does is Robertson tries to drive down the knee and step over it. Saunders sees it and tries to scoot out the back door. Robertson feels it, tries to come back the other way to stop it, which Saunders used to drive the knee back over and lock up full guard. So good job by Ben Saunders in establishing full guard 
in that first round. So let's talk about what happens in the second round, then we'll get out of here because i got to go. i got to go to my radio show. But what happens is he gets what's called mission control. So one leg goes over the top. You grab underhanded, your wrist facing you. I'm not, I am not an expert in the rubber guard. If anyone is, please feel free to correct me. You can email me at luke.thomas at espionation.com, and I will share that correction with anyone. I am not an expert on rubber guard at all. I, I, I don't play with it at all. Um, I read about it. I've certainly seen testimonials about it. I talk to people who do rubber guard, but I don't do rubber guard. So understand it. Now, this was not an overly sophisticated rubber guard, a very good and proficient one, but he didn't really go with a lot of fun, you know, a lot of wide variety of techniques. He locks up mission control. And then essentially, so he has one hand, I'm grabbing my own ankle, I'm pulling down. Yeah. And I got my other leg on top, basically with a triangle, but my hand is stuck behind you know, uh, my closing leg, well, my non-closing leg, I should say, the one over the back of the neck, so the hand's here. So so what happens with Robertson? He's here, arms are out here, and Robertson was constantly putting his hands on the mat, which against a rubber guard player is just all sorts of bad ideas. Okay, so what happens here? You see different things where, where Ben Saunders is driving in on one side and clearing the arm anytime he wanted that open space, Right. You saw him doing that. You saw him hugging the knee to really make things nice and tight. So you had one hand clamping down the neck, other hand hugging the knee, making everything nice and tight and squeezing in so Robertson could not get out, you know, even though he had both arms in. Because usually, it's you know, you don't want one arm in. It's either two arms in or no arms in, not one arm in, because that's what the triangle is. He had two arms in, and because of the, 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 the proficiency of the rubber guard of Saunders, he's able to, you know, hold down, hug the knee, and make it work. They were telling him to attack the right arm because there's a moment where he grabs the left wrist of Kenny Robertson, but remember, this hand's stuck. I can't do a Kimura here, so I can't do much with it. They were saying attack this one where the triangle was locked up for an armbar. You can spin under and do the armbar there. Okay, but the problem is once the hand came out, it was all the space that Robertson needed to, to break everything out. So it was that... So, so in one sense, Saunders was crippled because he couldn't get the hand out. Now, obviously, not nearly as crippled as Ben Saunders, who was just basically at his mercy. But I want to make a point here about um, the rubber guard. Number one, look, the rubber guard, if you work on it as well as Ben Saunders has, of course, it's a weapon. But it, it, I think it's a very limited one. It's not clear to me that this is like it, – it, it obviously is a very, very strong weapon for him. And he, there's a moment where he hit an omoplata in the first round there was a, and they rolled out. But that, to me, is not – you're not – if you're you doing omoplata in MMA, you're not threatening much unless you can take the back from it or you can get a true um, – uh, sweep to mount. It just doesn't. It doesn't. Doesn't work for me. The other part is with rubber guard. For me, what I've noticed is again, if you put a lot, if you put a tremendous amount of effort in anything, anything can be very good for you. But for me, in this particular case, um, what was the what was the key there were the were the slashing elbows. So remember, I asked you like if if you're Jessica I and you're holding on and you're not letting anyone get away, you're just stalling. Okay, well if you're just holding on a rubber guard, you're also stalling, right? Imagine if he wasn't throwing any strikes. And he wasn't trying to actually move into a submission. He was just holding on to mission control and then the triangle over the top, which is, which is you know, another, another name for it. I don't know the nomenclature for the rubber guard, but, you know, essentially a triangle with your hand stuck in the middle. Yeah. And both of their arms in the middle of you. So this is, but, you know, Robertson's not going anywhere. We can all agree with that. But if you just did that and did nothing else, you're stalling. You're stalling. It's the slashing elbows and then threatening with the submissions. That's where the rubber guard, uh, that, that's, excuse me, that's the difference between stalling and not stalling. I'm going to slice you open with those elbows. And, you know, he didn't work, but he at least tried to take his hand out to make the arm bar spin possible. 
So, so that's to me, like, that's a good offensive guard, you know, holding you in place. I'm going to cut you up. And then when time is expiring, I'm going to make something happen and, and try to go to something else. That's pretty great. But like the ability to get that kind of flexibility and that understanding of the rubber guard takes a huge amount of time. And I'm just not sure that's time well spent. I mean, it, it worked for Ben Saunders and cause he's really good at it. But to me, like people are like, well, does this prove the rubber guard works in MMA? I'm like, proves it works for Ben Saunders against Kenny Robertson. Does it prove it for anything else? I don't know. I don't know. Does reverse Dale Worm guard really work? Of course, you don't have a gi, but you know, um, all all of these guards only work to the extent that you make them work. But you know, this that it has a wide applicability in MMA. To me, once the hand came out, the whole show ended. Um, the elbows were great, and it won on the fight, and certainly the third round. But um, you know, it borders on stalling if you don't do other things with it. All right, I have to get out of here. I'm so late. My boss is going to kill me. Um, you can catch me on I don't know. Whatever. Email me at luke.thomas at SBNation.com. I'm on Twitter at SBNLukeThomas. This will go on the site later today on MMAfighting.com. Sorry that it took so long to get through everything, and uh, I'll see you guys uh, next week. Enjoy the fights.